Good morning. Good to be back with you all. If you missed video at the beginning, you missed uh, Mark Middlecoff came up and bench pressed 350 pounds. It was super impressive. <laughs> I doubt he'll do it again, but there you have it. All right. Uh, if you have your Bible, please flip with me to Acts chapter 2. At this rate, so yes, I'm doing a series through Acts. At this rate, I'll probably be done in 10 years or so. Uh, that's fine. Acts is a good book. Uh, so what we've been doing with Acts is we've been talking about, I'm calling it kind of family history. We've been talking about what's the church, what's our history look like, where do we come from, what was kind of the original group of Christians, what did they look like, what were their priorities, and hopefully we will, we will learn some things from them. Uh, where we're at in the story of Acts at this point is we are, we've finally gotten through Pentecost, so we had the Spirit descended, there was this big display of the Holy Spirit's power, Peter stood up, the same Peter who had failed Jesus several times out of fear, and this time emboldened by the Spirit, he stood up and he explained to everyone what was going on, that this Jesus whom we crucified was the Son of God. And everyone heard, and they, many of them repented, and this new community is born out of this. And this is the first time we're going to look at this new community, kind of the beginning of the Christian church in Acts chapter 2, and we are looking at 42 through 47. So let's read there together. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your church. It's amazing how much has to go right for us all to be in this room and to preach your word. We are so grateful for the opportunity to be together, to hear your word. We know that the enemy does not want that to happen. We know the enemy does not want soft hearts. We ask that you would soften our hearts now, that you would put aside those things that uh, keep us distracted, that we would focus on you and leave more aware of your goodness to us. And in Jesus' name, amen. So I'm a very large Jerry Seinfeld fan. Uh, I don't know if that makes you think more highly of me or less highly of me. Uh, it was definitely the show growing up that we, tried to, we had to watch behind mom's back. Um, but Seinfeld has this great little bit uh, of stand-up. I think he's one of the all-time great stand-ups. And he's talking about television, and so it's a little dated, but he says, the bad thing about television is that everyone on television is doing something better than what you are doing. The soda commercial people, where do they summon this enthusiasm? Have you seen them? We have soda, we have soda. Jumping, laughing, flying through the air. It's a can of soda. Have you ever been standing there and you're watching TV and you're drinking the exact product they're advertising right there on TV and it's like they're spiking volleyballs and jet skiing and beautiful people are everywhere and you're just standing there like, maybe there's not enough ice. Uh, Seinfeld nails it. Uh, one of the things that we um, are so used to and I feel like I'm more tuned into it now because I have small children and I'm very aware of what they're watching and what they're looking at and trying to see it through their eyes. It's funny how used to advertising we are and how used to uh, advertising tricks 
We are. If you are in advertising, I think there's a way to do it with integrity. I hope that's you. Don't hear me coming at you. But advertising, a lot of times, is just lying, like consistently. And uh, it's funny how we're like, we will, you know, take a break from this regularly scheduled program to lie to you repeatedly, you know. Um, and those, those lies are, you know, you could imagine a world where advertising is like, here is the product. This is what the product does. We hope that helps you. But instead, the thing is always like, your life is miserable. And this product will make everything better forever for you, you know. The first person, the camera's barely working, it's in the dark, they're alone, uh, their family hates them. They take the product, suddenly, outside, the grass is green, everything's beautiful. Okay, does the product actually alleviate headaches or something? Maybe, great. But the, the story that it's selling is, you could be this person. You know, you feel bad now, you could feel great. Uh, we're selling, advertisers have learned a long time ago, that the product is irrelevant, just sell the story. I ask my students sometimes, I'm like, just watch commercials. And when they end, say, what do I know about that product that I did not know before it started? It's like nothing. It's just story, lifestyle, they're selling a story, right? Uh, and I think it trains us somewhat to be very skeptical and cynical about stories. You know, people are just lying to us constantly. And the thing that's happened with social media, I'm, I'm super anti-social media, but I, there is a good way to use it. My wife uses social media well. You'll have to forgive me. I'm a high school teacher, so you can, you know, do that what you will. If you turn to social media, what you find is we've just taken all the advertising stuff and we do it to ourselves. We just kind of sell a certain story about our lives and who we are. And if you actually look at, like, advice people give about social media, they use advertising language. They say, like, branding for yourself and what you represent and all this. It's like, it was bad enough when we were being lied to all the time. Now we're asked to kind of present ourselves as a type of product, right? Uh, if the product is free, you are the product, as I tell my students. Um, it's advertisement for yourself. So we have advertising. It feels like we're constantly being lied to. We have social media where it's like kind of thinly veiled you know, some truth, I guess, in there. At the same time, you know, if we've been paying attention to the news the last five years, uh, if there's been this rise on both sides of this thing called resistance journalism. And the idea of resistance journalism is journalism that is very aware of the story it's selling over just basically presenting the facts of what's going on. And so when you go wade into the news, you find like, I don't really know what to trust because it feels like a narrative is being pushed instead of the actual news, and it's no wonder that a recent Gallup poll says that about 60% of Americans say they have not very much trust or no trust at all in the media, right? And then we get to religion. So it feels like advertising, a lot of deception, social media, a lot of deception, uh, journalism, a lot of deception, and in religion, we've had a lot of really public failures in the last several years. And we are all very keenly aware of every few years, there's a really devastating story where a bunch of people are duped. Uh, are led astray into kind of a cult. You can think of like Jim Jones and Jonestown or David Koresh or those kinds of things. And we don't want to be tricked or duped into fanaticism as well. Well, it can be easy to look at all of that and just leave kind of echoing Pilate's words to Jesus saying, what is truth? Like, there's no truth out there. What is this? I'm lied to constantly. I lie constantly. There is no truth. 
And at Bedrock, the, the problem is this, and this is a true thing, is the story we tell about ourselves is often untrue. Right? The story we tell about ourselves is often untrue. That's why you need you know, friends around, and good friends, because when you say something that's untrue about yourself, they can go, I don't think that's right, you know, on both sides. Um, if you're really arrogant, you need people to come alongside and go like, oh, you're not as great as you think you are, right? And if you're really down on yourself, you need someone to come alongside and go, you're not as bad as you think you are. You need that adjustment because the stories we tell ourselves are frequently untrue. And that can be really unnerving. I think that can lead us to a high level of cynicism about truth in general. But at some point, we have to trust something outside of our own experience. There's no way, as Ecclesiastes reminds us, to find the meaning of life just by looking at life itself. The book of Ecclesiastes, uh, Dr. Jack Collins points this out, is about someone who just decides, if I just look at life long enough, what do I learn? And the answer is, I can learn some things, but I cannot learn the ultimate things. At some point, I have to trust someone. Uh, a good example of this is if we were driving down the road and there was a construction site and we could see the beams and some things were being made, we might be able to make some guesses about what that building is. Uh, I think it's a hotel. I think it's a new business building for offices or those kinds of things. And we could learn some things about it, but we would not know until that under construction sign came up, under construction, new, you know, whatever. We would not know exactly what that was until somebody told us. If you took people from all over the world and just their experience and said, what's the meaning of life? There are going to be lots of different answers. We need divine revelation. We need something to step in and say, under construction, this is what's going on. We need it. Without it, we cannot find the truth. And actually, if you spend a lot of time studying philosophy, uh, I like a lot of philosophy. I don't write it off at large. Uh, it seems like a project, a lot of times, just meant to prove that one thing. That if you look at life long enough, you realize you will not get the answer you're looking for. Just looking at life won't get you there. You need something else to tell you what's going on, which means at some point, even in this place where it's so easy not to trust anything, we have to trust someone. C.S. Lewis makes an interesting statement in Mere Christianity that I think is, is well put. He says, if you're a Christian... You don't have to believe that all other religions are simply wrong all the way through. You know, you could say, well, I think they're right here. I think people have some stuff here. He says, but if you're an atheist, you, have to, you do have to believe that the main point in all the religions of the whole world is simply one big mistake. If you're a Christian, you're free to think that all those religions, even the oddest ones, contain at least some hint of the truth. When I, C.S. Lewis, still here, when I was an atheist, I had to try to persuade myself that most of the human race had always been wrong about the question that mattered to them most. When I became a Christian, I was able to take a more liberal view. Of course, being a Christian does not mean thinking that where Christianity differs from other religions, Christianity is right and they are wrong. It does mean that. As in arithmetic, there is only one right answer. All answers are wrong, but some of the wrong answers are much nearer to being right than others. I like that way of putting it. Uh, He's saying that it can be tempting to look at the construction site and say, this is too confusing and turn around and I'm not even going to try to make an answer because everything's wrong in the exact same way. And what Lewis is saying is, I believe Christianity is correct. 
And I believe other religions get some things right, and that's helpful and good to look at. They don't get the ultimate thing right, but they get some things right. But that the person who kind of turns their back on the whole thing and says, I'm not going to address this, I'm not going to try to find who to trust, is, is, is ignoring the work that we have to do to live in this world. Now, the cool thing for us is the God of the Bible has an interesting claim that gives us comfort in this landscape of, like, hard to trust anything, going to have to trust something. God says that he wants to be found. He wants to be found. That's the comfort, right? Hey, the world's a really hard place to discern what's true, but there is truth. It is God, and he wants to be found. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. There is no one in this room who, if they do not earnestly seek and pray to God, God turns away from. He wants to be found. Not only that, but he wants to find you. He wants to find me. So when God intervenes in the most incredible way, he does it through Christ, the word made flesh, the true word. And Jesus comes to tell us the true story about who we are, where we've been, where we're going. He meets us where we are, but he does not mince words. He does not pretend sin is not serious, but he doesn't tell us half-truths about God's love either. He does not seek to manipulate, but he tells us what will happen if we attempt to live apart from him. He comes to find the true worshipers of God. If we are listening in a wasteland of falsehood, we find someone who has access to truth, who wants us to have it. And that was the experience of these apostles, who in this moment had lived in this world where everybody's claiming, here's the new Messiah, here's the new Messiah, here's the new Messiah. And they're like, this is the one. He dies. They have a moment where they're like, we lost it again. We have, there's no truth. He's dead. He's in the ground. And he shows up three days later. And they suddenly know in this wasteland of, of disillusionment and lack of trust, we've got it. This is the story. This is the true story. We know what it is. And then, boom, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, the creation of the church, the community that says, we've got the true story. Here it is. And because Christ tells the truth, we live out the true story. We live in light of the true story. That has ramifications for us that goes all the way down. And we can see right away, it's not like Peter comes and says, guess what? Jesus is real. He died, he was resurrected. And they go, oh, sweet, and just kind of wander off. They immediately know this reorients everything. Down to, they've been worshiping on one day forever. Now they're going to worship on the day Jesus is resurrected. Everything is changed, and a community is built overnight. And so I want to look at this community, and I want to see three things that they do, because the Bible is uniquely broken down into three points everywhere. Uh, the three points, I'm kidding. <clears throat> But there are actually three good points here. The three points are receiving the true story, living in the true story, and praising the true king. So we start here. Look in verse uh, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. So we start off, and the first thing they do is the apostles are those who had face-to-face -face interaction with Jesus, okay? Which is why it also includes Paul. Paul is confronted by Jesus after his resurrection. 
So what's going on with these apostles' teaching? Now, if you're looking at your Bible, you've got, you know, Old Testament and New Testament. And there is Old Testament here, and then there's this large gap with the New Testament. And that large gap in years is a long time, and some people have wondered, well, why did we suddenly start writing new scriptures? Well, if you look back at God in the Old Testament, uh, I can think of Exodus 19 in particular. God frequently will show up to his people, do something incredible, okay? In Exodus 19, he delivers the Israelites from Egypt, and he'll say, first he'll give like a history, I have delivered you from the Egyptians. You are my people. Then he'll give some stipulations. If you keep my covenant, then you will be blessed among all people, and there's the sanctions, blessings, and curses, okay? And they would expect that when God acted in the world in a big way, when he did something really big, that there would need to be some way we break this down. Like, what are the ramifications of this? When God delivers us from Egypt, suddenly you have the whole law written, saying, like, there's this new promise, there's this new relationship between us. Here are the ramifications of this. Jesus dying and being resurrected would fulfill the bar of a big thing God has done. And people would expect, after Peter's speech, like, what, what are the ramifications of this? What do I do with the Old Testament? What do I do with the law? What do I do with myself? They would expect written text explaining what was going on. And right away, the apostles start doing this. The apostles start speaking to people. They start writing letters. Those letters very quickly are, are read aloud in worship in the same regard as the Old Testament letters. They're immediately treated as if they are scripture. Uh, some people, this is an aside, um, this may never be relevant for you, but some people this may be relevant for you. You may hear this before. Um, I stumbled across this in college, and I wish someone had spoken to me about it before. There are some people who will claim, uh, Bart Ehrman is a good example, that basically there were, at this period, there were all these different gospels. There were like 20 different gospels. And uh, you'll see a new one kind of roll out in Barnes & Noble every Easter. Like, we've discovered the Gospel of Judas and the Gospel of Thomas. Okay, um, The marketing around that stuff's really interesting. Another good conversation for later. But you'll see, some people will say there are these 20 Gospels that are out there. And at some point, the church just chose the four that were really advantageous to them. And those are the true ones. And they said those are the true ones. But really, we've got all this mess. Uh, just a quick aside, if you've, if you've heard that before, I, I would like to make a quick rebuttal to that. What you have in the Bible, the apostles' words, the gospels in particular, are books that were immediately accepted by the church community, recognized as being written by eyewitnesses of Jesus, were not questioned, were quickly duplicated over and over, were read in all these spaces, and it happened within about very close to Jesus' death and resurrection within a reasonable time frame. Even people who don't believe in Christianity date the Gospels in a place that's pretty reasonable to say, the person eyewitness who saw this wrote these documents. And we have codexes. Codexes are stacks of letters. We have codexes, uh, copies of codexes from the early church that show that they included these as scripture. Some of those other Gospels that you occasionally hear about, well, we'll give you an example. Gospel of Thomas. Gospel of Thomas, we only have a few copies of it. It was written in the second century. Right away, the church uh, elders recognized that it was a falsehood, that it was just like kind of written to stir things up. There was never a point at which the church was like, that is an accurate document that we believe in. 
So if you occasionally hear that or you go into Barnes & Noble and you see Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, Gospel of Ptolemy, any of those, and it puts a little splinter in your head, you don't have to be afraid of those things. Actually, do some research. Actually, just read it. Uh, some of my students have asked about that, and I've just given them copies of the Gospel of Thomas and said, like, just read the Gospel of Thomas and now just read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and let's talk about it. It's jarring. So those have been used, I think, as a stumbling block for people's faith before they shouldn't be. There's so much more attestation for the, the Gospels we have in the Bible. We have this true story, and immediately the church devotes themselves to the apostles' teaching, and we all gather every week to do the exact same thing. Uh, so what do we do with this true story? Well, I've made it thus far without making a Lord of the Rings reference at Grace Presbyterian. That puts me at several years. I'm pretty proud of myself, so <laughs> let it be known that I made it several years without making a reference. Um, there's this great scene in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, Lord of the Rings is the best ever. You should read it. Um, there's this great scene in the, movie, the film versions. It's a, it's a kind of uh, condensing of a longer passage in the book where Frodo and Sam, our two stalwart hobbits, are in a dark place, and they don't think they're going to make it. And Sam says this, It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end, because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had a lot of chances of turning back. Only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something, that there is something good in this world, and it's worth fighting for. What Sam does in that moment is it can be very easy for us to be only see what's right in front of our face. And what the apostles' teaching does is it consistently reminds you that you are in a very large story, one that ends really well. As Marilyn Robinson puts it, one day what we do here on earth will be sung like the epic, like an epic of Troy. We'll sing about what has taken place in this life. It can be easy to be very short-sighted. And the apostles' reminder is that you have a promise from God that what he's begun in you, he will bring to completion. That you will make it, right? So we have to remember that true story, and we come together because we are very short-sighted, and we come together to hear that story and remember that story. Jesus has won the victory. We have the good works laid before us, and what God has begun, he will bring to completion. So that's the first thing. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's what we're doing all the time. The second thing is they live in light of the true story, and that's like fellowship. They don't read it in a vacuum. They don't wander off and do it by themselves. This is very important. And if you look at it, look at this verse here in 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. Those are put like right beside each other with an and. It's not uh, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, subpoint, subpoint, subpoint. It says apostles' teaching, fellowship. Those go hand in hand with each other. That's really important. And it says devoted. This is not infatuation, okay? This is not you just started dating somebody and you haven't realized they're imperfect yet, okay? Uh, it's amazing how easily it is to tell when middle schoolers have a crush on someone and they think that you don't know. It's amazing. Um, just an aside. I love watching middle schoolers try to flirt because they know 
they're trying to do what they think adults do when they flirt. So you'll see like middle schoolers stand near each other and they're like, this is the point where we kind of talk like we're adults and they try to do it and they're really bad at it. Uh, brings me a lot of joy, maybe. <laughs> that makes me kind of wicked. Um, anyway, the infatuation that my middle schoolers occasionally feel when they've met the one and they're floating through life, this is not what we're talking about right here, okay? Uh, the apostles, the, they have devoted themselves. They have made a commitment. Yeah, I love middle schoolers too. If you're a middle schooler and you're listening, I love you. We all did the same thing. It's all good. Everybody here has terrible stories. <laughs> Um, I went to a middle school dance once, and I was, uh, I was so nervous about it that by most of the evening I just hung out with my friends, uh, sucking in the helium from balloons to make silly voices, so there you go. All right. That was not in my notes, by the way. Um, so they're devoted. They are, they are committed to the apostles' teaching, and they are committed to fellowship. They're committed on principle to fellowship. One of the really helpful things my parents told me once, it was, you know, that they were like, we've had periods in our marriage that were really tough, but we were committed to the principle of marriage, not just each other. I thought that was helpful, right? They were saying, we're not just, when we feel good, everything's great. They, they're committed to marriage to each other. That's this community, too. They're devoted. And deep down, I think we all want true community, but there is a cost to true community, and I think that's why we have so many kind of faux communities, like kind of, they're close, but they're not quite there. Because real community is dangerous. You know, people at your spin class aren't going to confront you over your sin, right? Uh, it's a community in the sense that you're together doing something, but it's, it's lacking some of that bite of real community. Real community is hard. It's hard to do. It takes a lot of work. It puts you kind of on the chopping block sometimes, right? Um, and true fellowship is done... In, is community done in light of the true story? So if the true story, for example, is that the primary goal of our lives is to draw close to God, then I would expect that this would be a community where we confess our sins to one another. And when we see a brother or sister failing, we talk to them about it. And when someone confronts us, we're receptive to it. Right? That's really radical. But if the story is true, that the most important thing is not kind of cohabitation, but like the most important thing is we draw close to God, then those things should happen. Uh, I've been able to, um, I've been able to officiate uh, a wedding and done, done some premarital. And one of the things um, I try to tell, uh, I tell them is that like the most important thing is that moment when your spouse confronts you over some uh, way you failed because if you respond by you know slamming that you've cut off this that is actually if that works that's an amazing gift for the spouse coming to you and saying i'm seeing you fail in this way and you receive it with gratitude like that was hard to hear thank you for your bravery for doing that uh that's what true community is like right it has a cost uh it's hard but it is true community uh, we also see here that this true community they live out uh, the way they use their money in light of the story. So uh, let's keep going. Look at 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all 
as any had need. So once again, what's the true story say? The true story says you have everything you need in Christ, that one day you will be before him and you'll have all you need, that every gift you've been given was a gift from God, your skills are a gift from God, your ability to earn was a gift from God, the money you have is a gift from God, right? Therefore, I should live a life of generosity as opposed to hoarding, right? And they would have had in their heads, they would have remembered Jesus saying in Luke 12, he tells this terrifying parable in some ways. He says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he said, thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And then I'll store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And then Jesus says, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So the true story says we don't do this with money, we do this. We hold it open-handedly. And this fellowship, this community knows that, and they're defined by giving to one another. When people are in a bad spot, they help out. And it also requires, interestingly, that when people are in a bad spot, they allow people to help them. Double thing going there, right? I had a, uh, my campus pastor told me this. We went out, to, he was always getting on me. We went out to eat and I had forgotten to bring my money and he had to cover me. And he had asked me like, this has happened like several times in a row and I'm kind of embarrassed. And so I'm just apologizing profusely like the whole time we're eating. I'm so sorry. I'll pay you back, promise, yada, yada. And finally, he just tells me, you can tell how much you believe in the gospel by how well you receive a gift. Like, <laughs> uh, point taken. He's saying that fundamentally the gospel is you are receiving a gift you don't deserve. Right? That's an awkward feeling. It can be. We like the kind of, you know, I give in equal, you give in equal. The gospel puts us in a really humble place. There is a type of person who views receiving gifts as like getting in debt, and they don't feel comfortable until... They're even, you know? The debt is paid off. Uh, and that's me a lot, too. And honestly, there's a bit of pride in there, right? The gospel is the true story is we receive this unconditional gift, even though we totally didn't deserve it. That's kind of it. So if uh, we have received this unconditional, non-repayable gift from God, then we won't receive gifts in a way where we, we're keeping tally. We'll be good at giving gifts. We'll be good at receiving gifts. If you're afraid of over-the-top free gifts and afraid of charity, Christianity is not the religion for you. Sorry. Uh, that's kind of its scene. In 2011, there was this massive earthquake in Japan, and it uh, was an earthquake and then a tsunami, and it shut down the cooling systems of this nuclear reactor plant. And uh, it was one of the biggest nuclear crises since Chernobyl. And for several months, they tried to contain the fires, like three months working. And there was little success. And at this point, a group of elderly, retired Japanese engineers created a group called Skilled Veteran Corps and said, we'll go in instead of the young guys and the young ones. We want to go in their place. We've lived a good life. We understand there may be a cost to this. But we don't want them going in anymore. The country needs them to grow up, to do good things. We're going to go in their place. That's a free gift, right? 
that's an unrepayable gift that they are giving. And they're giving it because they have a story in their head about like, hey, we, uh, the story has to, they have a role to play and we're going to step in for this. We should save our younger generation, one of the leaders said. I think that's a really beautiful picture, uh, community working well, right? So if we are doing community in light of the true story, we're going to look pretty different. We are going to take sin seriously, but we're also going to confess our sin. It's going to be a safe place to confess sin, even though sin is serious. Those two things are going to be held hand in hand. We're going to love people really seriously. We're going to occasionally confront people when they need to be confronted. We are going to get confronted. <laughs> uh, and when it happens, the push is going to be that we're going to receive it because so frequently God works through his community. We're going to give good gifts, and we're going to be in positions where we need to receive good gifts. And we do all those things in light of the true story. So we have this group is, uh, they are doing, listening to the apostles teaching. They're in fellowship. And the last thing they do, last point, is they praise the true king. So they have, the apostolic teaching comes down to them. It affects the way they react. And then it kind of goes back up through prayer. We look at 46 through 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I want to be quick here because you could preach forever on prayer, and that feels like a sermon for another time. But I do want to point out that at, at root of this is gratitude. So at root of this is a recognition of the gift they've been given. Remember, this is a community that Peter just said, hey, you remember how we all killed Jesus? Turns out he was God. Okay. So when you say that and the response from God is not, I'm going to destroy you forever, but actually I love you forever and I died for you, even though you rose, raised your hand against me and killed me, I still am totally devoted and love you. The only appropriate response to that is gratitude. And this community is one that has a deep response of gratitude, and that gratitude turns into prayer. That gratitude turns into worship of the true king. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts. And notice, if the earlier part of the passage is true, they have less stuff than they did at the beginning. Them running into Jesus has not been good for them, probably, financially, <laughs> right? On a world standard, them running into Jesus has devalued them. And I guarantee you they're more grateful when they're eating their food here than they were before. Why? Because they recognize the gifts they've been given to God. As they see the gift, it actually allows them to kind of loosen their hands on the things they have. They recognize that they're a steward of their money, their health, their lives, those kinds of things. And a question to ask ourselves and a question uh, that we should ask ourselves individually and corporately is, are we functionally and kind of an atheist group? Are we functionally an atheist community? Do we pray? Do we believe that they are gifts from God? That's, that's the thing, right? Do we actually kind of just uh, live life and the story is there but not really applicable to us? Do we not recognize that like now the temple curtain has been torn and we have direct access to Jesus that, that is the great benefit? Uh, I'm ashamed to say that I live many days kind of functionally atheist, right? Uh, and by that, I mean um, that I live in a way that I think if you watched, you would say, I don't believe in anything, except that you work hard and 
you protect yourself from failure and you hope things work out. And I get anxious in ways that would betray that I don't think there is a God in charge of me and the world and I don't think the story ends well. I think that's probably true for a lot of us. So prayer is the place and I think it needs that same devotion. Uh, some of you have stories where you remember becoming a Christian for the first time and the first few months were really easy and exciting, right? And uh, you were reading like crazy and you were praying a lot and you always feel like, I wish I could go back to that particular time. Uh, I think that these, this church here, it's, it's devotion. It's, they, of course, we, of course, you know, have that gratitude and that feeling, but it also just requires kind of a commitment of, like, I am going to pray. We are going to be a praying community. This is going to become a priority for us. And so as we look at the church, big picture, we see two directions here. The truth comes in, and two things happen. It goes uh, vertical and horizontal. It goes horizontal and true fellowship, loving each other, and horizontal, I'm getting them wrong with the hands, and that's probably frustrating some of you, uh, <laughs> towards God and towards each other, right? Love God, love man. And the result, there's no guarantee in this passage, this isn't like you put change in the machine and this is what happens to your society, but look what happens in verse 47. Uh, they're praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. There's something about what they're doing that when people see it, it's amazing. It disrupts the normal stories. It disrupts the power narrative they're constantly hearing. It disrupts their anxiety. They see people who have all these reasons to hang on to money and do all these things, and they see them giving stuff away and loving each other and confronting each other on their sins and then responding well and all these things. And they say, what is happening? What is this? That's us. That's our call, right? I'm going to end with this. Uh, this article was written in the New York Times a couple of months ago. It was by a young woman who was discussing her relationship with social media. And it just perfectly, well, I'll read it to you. And you'll, you'll hear it. She says, I've hardly prayed to God since I was a teenager. But the pandemic has crept open inside me a profound yearning for reverence, humility, and awe. I have an overdraft on my outrage account. I want moral authority from someone who isn't shilling a memoir or calling out her enemies on social media for clout. I find myself craving role models my age who are not only righteous crusaders but also humble and merciful. And I'm not finding them where I live online. Referring to the influencers who have, influencers who have filled the void religious faith has left for people like me, I think they might inspire me to live my best life, but they don't tell me how to make the best use of my life. There's a chasm between the vast scope of our needs and what online influencers can provide. We're looking for guidance in the wrong places. Instead of helping us to engage with our most important questions, our screens might be distracting us from them. And she ends by saying, maybe we actually need to go to something like church? Question mark. If that person ever wanders in here, what will they find? Will they find more utility, more disillusionment? Or will they find a true community living in light of the true story? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you have a true story for us. Thank you that we have a place in that true story. 
Thank you for all the ways you've reached out to us. I thank you for your mercy towards us. I thank you for your many mercies towards us, even this morning. Father, may we be devoted like this community was devoted to the teaching of your word. May we be devoted to each other, to true fellowship, to, even when it means hard things. And may we be devoted to prayer. Thank you that at the root of all this, we don't have to summon up willpower or hard things or whip ourselves into shape. We have gratitude because of what you've done for us. And we have the spirit which empowers us to do these things. We are incapable of being this church apart from you. May we cling to you. In Jesus' name, amen.